Good morning, Woodland Hills. Yay! <laughs> good morning to all of you here, and good morning to those of you online. My name is Emily Morrison. As Rob said, uh, I am on the communications team here, which, as anybody knows, we are Woodland Hills' finest. We are the best team here. Woo! So, um, I gotta tell you like a little story of why I'm up here today, besides the fact that Greg is sick, because I think God is doing something a little funky. So on Monday, I, I used to be on a teaching team at a, a different church, um, and I had this feeling on Monday, I, I wanna go back and listen to one of my old sermons, which is weird. It doesn't feel good listening to yourself <laughs> preach or anything, but I just had this, uh, ink, this like inkling in me that this is what I needed to do. And so I, I listened to it, and as I was listening, I thought, man, this is exactly what we're talking about in our Unraveling Truth series. So on Monday, I emailed Greg and Paul an email that I never could have imagined myself saying, and the subject line was, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think I have a message I need to preach. <laughs> and so they, they looked at it, and they were like, that's great, but like, okay, we'll see where we can fit this in the series. We already have all these weeks planned out, blah, 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 blah. Then Thursday, uh, Greg says, I, I'm feeling kind of sick. My voice isn't great. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, Emily, would you consider preaching the sermon you talked about on Monday? And I was like, okay. And so Friday, he calls me first thing in the morning. I, I'm like barely out of bed. Hello, Greg. So, and he says, I, uh, you're on, you're on. And I was like, okay. So I <laughs> reworked the sermon, spent hours and hours on it. And it was just, um, it was kind of, I don't know. I, I wanted you guys to know that background because uh, I feel like the spirit put a, together a lot of pieces. And I also want to say, Greg, I know you're watching. Mr. Free Will there, this thing was predestined. <laughs> so, as you know, we are in a series called Unraveling Truth, about truth and relativism and this world that we live in. Like our bumper, we've got a cacophony of voices telling us this is true, or this is true, or this is true, or there's no truth. So we're both in a world where it feels like truth that we know is unraveling, and we're trying to dig into this mess and unravel the truth at the core of it. Another word that we can use in place of unraveling is deconstruction. And this is something that both Danny and Greg talked about. And I realize if you're hanging around the church recently or the past, I don't know, 10 years, deconstruction is kind of a popular word. But I'm not gonna let that stop me because I think the image is actually helpful. What is deconstruction? It, it's simply taking a serious and critical look at your beliefs, of taking them apart and probing and wrestling and exploring so that we can then rebuild our faith from a more solid place. After all, it's important to build our faith on something solid, right? If you grow up in the church, uh, you oftentimes have this experience where when you're about this high, you're singing songs about Noah's Ark, right? And then you get like this high and you're in junior high and you're singing songs that go na, 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 na. And with that Noah's Ark and those na, 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 na's, at some point you gotta figure out what you believe and why you believe it. You can't, you can't keep riding through life without a serious look at your faith. 
And when you take a look at your faith, sometimes there's demo work that has to be done. And a lot of times, we've got to tear our faith down to the studs so we can build it back up sturdier than before. It's faith renovation, right? So a few years ago, I lived in a house where it was was really weird because it was an old house, and for some reason, they had like a bathroom on the front porch that had been part of the old house. And so we had boarded it, or I hadn't boarded it up. It was boarded up, but we wanted to reclaim that space on the porch. And so we um, decided to take it down, tear it down. We're going to tear out that bathroom and make this really nice porch space. Uh, But to do that, we had to get inside this weird bathroom area. And so we hammered out a hole, and two of my housemates picked me up and heaved me through this hole. And then they threw in a sledgehammer, and from the inside, I was just like whacking that thing down. And that was the beginning of our deconstruction of that porch. And now, let me tell you, it is such a nice porch. I don't live there anymore, but sometimes I go there and just sit sit on the porch that I helped make. (laughs) But that Sometimes to me, the reason I like the deconstruction metaphor is because I can translate that image into what it feels like when I'm thrown inside my faith and I'm trying to sledgehammer my way out. There's, a, there's an intensity to that. Greg, in his first week, he talked about hitting bottom. That was the name of his sermon because he talked about going down to the foundation. And I have questions and I have doubts to grapple with. Because faith is always accompanied by doubt. Faith lives in company with questions and confusions and often hesitations. And we tend to run away from those doubts, right? We tend to be bothered by them. But you know who's not bothered by doubts? Jesus. Jesus is not bothered by our doubts. Instead, it's almost like it's something that he expects of us. It's like one of our trademark features as humans. Multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus says to his followers, oh, you of little faith. And I read, Dallas Willard has a book called The Divine Conspiracy, and in it he talks about how a a way we could literally translate this is little faiths. And he suggests that this is a word or a phrase that Jesus coined as a nickname for his followers, little faiths, which (laughs) is kind of a bummer of a nickname, right? Because he's like, Peter the Rock, and James and John, the sons of thunder, and it's like, little faiths. (laughs) But that's what we are, right? I also feel there's like a little bit of affection and teasing in there. So he tells his little faiths, don't worry about how God will take care of you. He will provide for you. And he tells his little faiths when they're in the boat and afraid in the storm, don't don't be afraid, little faiths. And when Peter sinks and Jesus helps him into the boat, he says, why did you doubt me, little faith? So I want to say up front, if if we're confused in this cacophony of truth claims and wrestling with faith and doubt, it's okay because we are God's lovable little faiths. So you don't have to raise your hand, but show of hands, how many of you have ever found yourselves thinking, this Jesus thing is ridiculous? Ridiculous. You're telling me I'm supposed to believe that God came to earth as a baby, that he was born of a virgin, then he grew up and he did stuff like turn water into wine and walk on water, and then he died, and then he came back to life. Like, we get so used to that that sometimes it doesn't sound weird to us until we really stop and think. It's like, 
this is weird. This is super strange. And a lot of times I feel like, I, like every, probably once a year I come back to this and I'm like, wait a minute, really? Is this really true? So today I want to look at a passage in John chapter 6 where the people who are following Jesus have this moment where they're also asking like, wait, really? Is this really true? This episode in John 6 is wild, but I hope that it helps us understand what I think of as three phases in our faith journey as we navigate this time of unraveling truth. So quick context set. Uh, The beginning of John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish. I almost said five loaves of fish and two bread. (laughs) Um, And then he stays behind after that moment. He, He withdraws. So his disciples get in the boat and they cross back over the lake to Capernaum. And later on, Jesus catches up with them by walking on water. (laughs) What? So the next day, the crowd who had stayed on the side where Jesus had fed them, they realize, wait, Jesus isn't here, but we didn't see him get in the boat with the disciples. And there was only one boat. And so they're doing the math and the numbers don't add up. It says, uh, so when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. So that's the context here. So we're going to look at John uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 25. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man gave you, can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. So these people are asking, how, how did you get here? The boat math doesn't add up. But Jesus, like so many other times in the Gospels, he doesn't answer that question, does he? He jumps right into their hearts and into their motivations, and he says, you're just here for the food, but that's not what matters most, which, oh, of course they're there for the food. If I was in the crowd and I found someone who could mass-produce bread out of nothing, I'd be there for the food. Actually, if you know me at all, you know all I do is stuff for the food. When I heard that there's donuts in Echo, I thought, how can I get out of this sermon and go get donuts, right? So, but Jesus is saying, don't get stuck on the food. There's a bigger picture. There's more important things. Then they replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Okay, the people say after Jesus talks about this bread thing. We've got a second question. You're you're talking about kind of deep things. You're a man of God and you're a teacher. You say that you have God's stamp of approval and are doing his work. So we we can talk deep stuff too. Here's our question. You're doing these works of God. How can we do works of God? But Jesus also doesn't really answer this question. He says, he doesn't say, okay, well, first you need to, one, two, three. Instead, he says, the thing right now is to believe So first he steps them away from being concerned with perishable things, and then he says the imperishable thing that you should be thinking about is him, is Jesus, is believing in him. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? 
After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the people want to know what kind of signs Jesus can do. And I think this is a really good question because if someone is saying, believe in me, our natural response should be, okay, but, but why? Show me. Give me a reason to believe in you. And the Jews for all of history had followed a God who revealed himself in signs in the past. So if Jesus is, is claiming to be from God, where are the signs now? And Jesus' answer is basically telling them that, yep, manna fell from the sky, that was the sign back then, but I'm the sign today. God is the source of both, he's the source of the sign of the manna, but the present day sign is Jesus. Jesus the manna is the manna, he's the bread. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again, Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, which I'm a little thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. So again, they're still trying to figure out this bread thing. Like, give us bread. How do we get this eternal bread? And Jesus is drawing them back to himself. Look at me. Stop getting distracted. I'm the bread you want. You want bread every day? I'm the bread that will keep you satisfied always. And that's actually the reason I came. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? And again, this is a great question. If someone, okay, walks through the doors here at Woodland and says, I am from heaven, and you know, like, wait a second, this is the kid of the guy who owns the hardware store, I think we would want to know, like, what do you mean? Tell, like, this doesn't make sense. Ask a good question. Uh, skip down to verse 47. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh 
and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. (laughs) That's so weird. Uh, Okay, so the crowds have been following Jesus for a good bit now. The disciples have been following Jesus. At at this point, they've seen incredible miracles. They've heard the teachings of Jesus. They followed him from town to town and listened to him and watched him. He says really profound things. He says confusing things. And then he says this downright bewildering thing. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. This isn't the kind of thing you let slide. So many of his disciples said, This is, they said what I would say. This is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Now, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, That is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Fascinating exchange. So much going on here. So first thing I want to point out is that this whole episode comes up because the people are asking questions. And in our Unraveling Truth conversation, I consider this to be phase one of our journey of faith. Asking questions. This crowd, for a variety of reasons, wants to know more. And these questions are good questions, right? Questions that we would ask and probably should ask today. Questions like, how do we follow God? What evidence is there to believe you? Who are you anyway? And what do you mean when you say these things? The points people are raising are are the kind of things you should ask before you just jump on board with someone. Proverbs 14, verse 15 says, the simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. And all this questioning, though, opens the door to doubt, because doubt starts with questions. Doubt is just that little voice in your your voice that says, hmm, I'm not really sure about that. And again, that's a good thing. We are told to love God with all our hearts and our soul and our strength and our mind. I think when we ask questions, we are loving God with our mind. Because questions mean that you are engaged with someone, you are grappling with them, you are interacting with them. How how do you think you could, could have a relationship without asking questions? Have you ever tried to make a friend with someone without ever asking a question? It's not possible, right? So there also are just so many questions to ask. Over the years, I've talked to people about what kind of things keep them from from faith, and it's interesting the different issues people have. For some people, it's science. They're not sure how it's compatible. For some people, it's suffering, the problem of evil, hell, uh, morality, 
exclusivity. Some people, it's Christians that keep them from faith. And these are all things that we have to wrestle with, actually, no matter what our belief system is. These are the big questions in life. In fact, these are the questions we're talking about in this series and we will be talking about. But Jesus in these conversations doesn't ever ask the people to wrestle, to engage with a belief system. He asks them to engage with him. Do you believe me, he asks. This is how trust works. We are asked to trust a person. This shows up all the time in movies, right? You have this scene where where it's a crucial moment and one character turns to the other and says, I need you to trust me, or you're just gonna have to trust me, and somebody is usually jumping. And uh, here's an example, Um, Aladdin. Aladdin shows up at the palace to woo the princess Jasmine, and he's on his flying carpet, and he invites her to get on the carpet with him And the first thing she says is, um, is it safe? And this is, Aladdin does not respond like this. Well, Jasmine, let me tell you about the aerodynamic properties of flying carpets and how the tassels interact with lift and drag. Instead, he says, sure it is. Do you trust me? Or in the movie Titanic, the character takes Jack, uh, the character Jack takes Rose to the bow of the ship and he wants her to climb up, climb up and lean over the, the railing a little bit so she can feel like she's flying. And Rose is a little hesitant, um, but Jack says, do you trust me? And Rose says, I trust you. See, Jack doesn't ask Rose to believe in the structural integrity of the Titanic, which, good call, Jack. <laughs> he asks Rose to trust in him. In the same way, throughout this whole John 6 conversation, Jesus is telling the people that at the end of their doubts and questions is him. In fact, he tells them that right there in the passage, the only thing God asks of them is that you believe in the one he has sent. Because the place Jesus really wants to bring us is to decide what we're going to do with him. Our faith is built on Jesus, nothing else. And it's so easy to get sidetracked away from the centrality of believing in Jesus and wander down these other paths that don't have much to do with him. Like the people getting distracted by miracle bread and their questions about manna, a lot of times we too build our faith on secondary things that don't have to do with Jesus. So for example, when I was in high school, I faithfully read this magazine called Creation. And it was devoted to defending a literal Genesis interpretation of creation. The whole premise of the magazine was that this issue was the cornerstone of faith, where we had to hold the line. According to this magazine, a belief in evolution would draw a straight line to societal downfall because it opened the doors, they said, to secularism and moral relativism. And the thought was, if we lose our creation literalism, we lose the whole ball game. And at the time, I believed that. I held on to this very firmly. I was like, okay, this is what we got to do. And uh, interestingly, this magazine has changed its name. It's now called Answers, which I think is really interesting because we all want answers, right? But that's not how faith works. Now, honestly, I don't know how exactly God created the earth. Was it six days? Was it six million? I don't know, I wasn't there, guys. So I, I don't know that. 
I do know two things. I know that God created the earth, and I know that my faith cannot be built on how he did it. In the same way, while the questions the crowd asked were good, Jesus wanted them to see that their faith couldn't be built on signs and manna and bread, or even understanding what he was saying. Don't be concerned about perishable things, he said. Focus on the eternal. So when we are reconstructing our faith, deconstructing and then reconstructing, we're going to ask a lot of good questions. But don't fall into the trap of getting distracted by the lesser questions. Don't be concerned that you have to nail down answers to every peripheral thing. Spend your energy on the foundational question of Jesus. The book of John includes far and away the most I am statements that Jesus made claiming who he was. And it talks about believe more than any of the other gospel accounts. Which makes sense because when John says, this is the purpose of my book, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see I am statements five times in this chapter alone, okay? I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Yes, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Okay, we heard you the first time. But these aren't the only claims. In the, in the book of John, Jesus makes a lot more claims about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am from above. I am not of this world. I am he, the Messiah. I am he, the Son of God. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am in the Father. These are all things Jesus says about himself. It feels like John is emphasizing over and over again, here's who Jesus says he is. What are you going to do with him? Now on the flip side, John also includes a lot of things that people say they think about Jesus. There's a lot of he is statements. He is a good man. He is a fraud and deceiver. He is demon-possessed. He is the Messiah. He is a Samaritan. He is a sinner. He is a prophet. He is Lord. He is raving mad. He's a blasphemer. He's a mere man. He is the king of Israel. Wow, what interesting list. And this is what the Christian faith is. We look at Jesus' I am statements, and then we don't look so much at the philosophy and the ethics and the isms. We look at, we look at what do we do with Jesus' I am statements. Of course, there are other people who claim to be the Messiah. There are other prophets. There's Muhammad and Buddha and Joseph Smith. But the reason I think wrestling with Jesus' claims is more important than any other figure in history is because his claims are super consequential and unique in that 
well, for one thing, Muhammad, Buddha, and Joseph Smith did not claim to be God, um, although other people have. But what makes Jesus, this, his claim, very interesting is the context in which he did it. The context of Judaism was a monotheistic culture, and to come into that and claim to be God, no wonder they called him a blasphemer. This is the culture where it would be hardest to convince anybody that you are God. This is the furthest thing from people's minds, and yet he still convinced them. They believed, they found him to be true. Jesus is God. He reconciled us to God through the cross. He's resurrected, still alive today. He's inviting us into relationship with him. These are big things that Jesus is saying. And as Greg said last week, ultimately Christianity is founded on the absolute truth claim that Jesus is Lord. Which means, y'all, that if Jesus is not God, if there's not his death and resurrection, then he is useless and pointless. Go get your life somewhere else. I'm serious. Like, there's no point to Jesus without these things. We saw some of the people said that Jesus was a good man or a mere man or a prophet. And if he was and you want to follow him, okay. But there's so many other good men and good men who don't ask as much of you. So... You know, just, just go with them, not Jesus. There's no point. Jesus claimed to have changed the cosmos. So if that's not true, you know what? Everybody, let's just get out and we'll go bowling. Let's just, let's just leave right now and get some donuts. <laughs> but if Jesus' claims are true, this is really high-stick stuff. You're dealing with the God of the universe, which isn't small potatoes, which brings us to making a decision, which I see as phase two. At the end of this whole weird conversation, the people have two choices. They can either say yes to Jesus or no. You either take Jesus at his word or you don't. And all these people heard the exact same message. They heard the exact same words come out of Jesus' mouth. And they saw the exact same miracles. But some of them turned away and deserted him. And other people stayed. So, you know what? God will not force you into anything Jesus let people walk away from him all the time, and he still does, because we get to choose. The one thing you can't do, though, is live in doubt land forever. You can't make a permanent home on a construction site. At some point, you need to step out of the boat. At some point, as Jesus said to Thomas, you need to stop doubting and believe. At some point, you need to throw in your lot with Jesus or walk away from him. When you hear this hard message that's confusing, you can either say, how can we accept this? Or to whom else will we go? But you have to decide. And making a decision is based on evidence. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So when Jesus says, do you trust me? I do because of the evidence. I have reason to trust him. As Greg said last week, faith goes beyond reason, but never against it. So we're not making this choice blindly. Blind faith is truly foolish and irresponsible. To borrow from another Disney movie, The, the Jungle Book, Blind faith would be like um, Mowgli and the snake. 
So the snake comes to Mowgli, and he sings this song, Trust in Me, in a very eerie, nasally voice. And he tries to hypnotize Mowgli, and Mowgli kind of, oh, trust in me. And that's blind faith. There was not good reasons to trust this, trust this snake. We make decisions on the best information we have, and the best information I have has led me to the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is. I don't think any other faith captures the way the world works or speaks to our deepest longings the way that Jesus does. And based on the evidence, I don't think there is any other way apart from him. I believe in Jesus because I think he's true. I think he is the way and the truth and the life. And that's grounded in evidence based on history, based on the reliability of witnesses, based in tradition and experience. I get to say along with the Apostle Paul, I am convinced. Okay, so we, we look at the evidence, we, make it, we t- look at Jesus' claims, we test and probe and question and doubt, and then we take that and we make a decision. And then, ta-da, 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 everything's all right. Done with that. Glad we sorted that out. My brain is free to deal with other things, right? No, not at all. <laughs> now we move into phase three, which I think of as living with uncertainty. The entire rest of the book of John, the people who have made various decisions, the disciples included, are are still trying to figure this out. It's not like they sorted this out that day. Most of the list I showed you of the claims that other people were making about Jesus, whether he's a madman or a prophet, those happen after this. So people are still trying to, to sort this through. People who, who said, who deserted Jesus, and people who said, we're gonna stick with you, it wasn't entirely settled for either of them because it, it just, it can't be. There's still a chance to grapple with it. And, and this uncertainty means we're going to have to do something that does not feel good. And that not good feeling is living with ambiguity. One of the things that my mom says over and over again to me, which I, I really hate, hi mom, I love you, is, Emily, you need to learn to tolerate the discomfort. Oh, and ambiguity is exactly the kind of place where we need to learn to tolerate discomfort because it is uncomfortable. We wanna feel good, right? We wanna have things sorted out beyond a shadow of a doubt but life is ambiguous. Now, I, I wanna say once again, I'm not saying that if you don't have 100% absolute, complete, no shadow of the doubt, certainty, that the only alternative is blind faith. But we're not just believing this stuff willy-nilly. But I also know that no one can 100% prove anything. And so along the way, doubt will be a companion, a companion for all of us sitting here. And we must learn to believe and be skeptical at the same time and come back to our decision and sit in the tension of that. And church people, man, they sometimes can be the worst at this. We've got it into our heads that to be a Christian means there's only room for absolute certainty. So since the church has such a hard time, maybe maybe physicists can show us how this works. This is my favorite part, I get to nerd out. One of my favorite things about physics is that there's an entire concept called the uncertainty principle. 
And I want to say up front, I'm don't, I don't even know what that, that's the uh, that's the actual uh, formula, but I don't <laughs> I don't know what that means. So all you real physics people, please just give me some grace. But I do know what the uncertainty principle is, and it says that. If you have a particle, you can't measure the momentum of that particle at the same time as the position of it. So, so what I mean is, if you pinpoint, okay, this is where that particle is, you cannot then know its momentum. And on the flip side, if you can measure whoom, the momentum of this particle, you can't pinpoint where it is. The more you know one of those, the less you know the other. So there's always uncertainty about one or the other, which is wild, right? Because baked into our fundamental understanding of the universe and how stuff works is a principle we call the uncertainty principle. There's something we know we can't know. And in physics, a lot of stuff is calculated not in certainty, but in high probabilities. And I'd say the evidence for Jesus gives you the highest probability you can get. One of my favorite physicists, Richard Feynman, says this, the scientist has a lot of experience with ignorance and doubt and uncertainty. Scientific knowledge is a body of statements of varying degrees of certainty, some most unsure, some nearly sure, but none absolutely certain. Now, we scientists are used to this, and we take it for granted that it is perfectly consistent to be unsure, that it is possible to live and not know. I think we could learn a thing or two from physicists. And part of the reason I bring up physics is because a lot of times we tend to think that there's a world of faith and there's a world of science. And in science, you have hard facts and you have proof and evidence. And in faith, you just kind of believe things. But I want us to see that in every part of life, we are choosing to believe things that we cannot necessarily understand or prove. And we build our beliefs off of evidence. We dig and we probe and we test and we hypothesize and we make a conclusion and we run with it, but we never reach absolutely certainty, absolute certainty. Whether, whether you are a scientist, it's, it's in every aspect of our life. There's no such thing as 100% certainty. We believe Jesus because of high probabilities. And I don't like this. I don't like the way that feels. I wish there was 100% knowing. So like the disciples, we come to Jesus in phase one. We begin with our questions. How do we follow God? How do we know you're reliable? Who are you? And what do you mean when you say these things? And then we listen to his claims. He says, I'm the bread of life. Believe in me. And we weigh the evidence. We've seen his miracles. We looked at his teaching. But Joseph's kid, right? And then we look at this God-man who's unlike anybody we've ever met, and we move to phase two, the decision point. We think this is hard teaching. Who can accept it and walk away? Or we say, to whom else will we go and we believe? And then a little further down the road, we catch ourselves in phase three, thinking, huh, am I really sure about this Jesus fellow? But Jesus knows we are his little faiths, the ones who get confused and bewildered. 
One of the most comforting verses I I remind myself of in, in this topic is from Matthew 28, verse 17. This is Jesus with his disciples for the last time. It's after his resurrection. He's preparing to return to the Father. He ascends to heaven. And it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Guys, if anyone had no reason to doubt, it was this group. They had been with Jesus for three years. You saw Jesus dead. You saw him alive. And you're still not sure? And that's so comforting to me because they were little faiths just like us. So I want you to be encouraged by that, my fellow little faiths. And know that God still knows we are his little faiths and we can bring him his, our doubts. We can process our doubts with God. We're all at different points in our faith, right? So we're deconstructing, we're reconstructing, we're asking questions, we're seeking truth. The truth is unraveling and we're unraveling the truth. But no matter where you are, know that it's okay to live in ambiguity. To close, I just I want to say one more thing because this has been an uber nerdy sermon, in case you didn't notice. And I've leaned really heavy on our brains, but guess what? We we also have hearts. And our, our faith and our doubts and our struggles can't be boxed off or compartmentalized into just our brains. Everything is connected. We're whole beings. And the truth is, I don't think a lot of our faith crises come from just intellectual pondering that's cut off from the rest of us. I think most of our faith crises come because our hearts get really hurt by this world. My crises of faith have not been sterile intellectual things. My crises have come about because of really hard and painful life events. And because of those painful hard events, they raised the questions that led to my doubts. It turned out that through some awful experiences, the things I thought were true, the things I had reasons reasoned with and believed, they had let me down. I, I felt like... God had let me down, or at least the version of God that I knew. I felt betrayed and abandoned, and in my faith crises, I was heartbroken, not mind-broken. But then, out of my heartbreak, I felt like my mind broke. So this question thing isn't abstract. I don't think we're locked away in a library reading our books and then have a breakdown. So often, the questions we have pulse out of our hurting hearts, and so maybe today you're tired and you're hurt by, by God or by Christians or by the church, just life in general. But you know what? We take our heartaches to the same place we take our headaches. We take all of it to Jesus. Jesus who is strong and kind and gentle and patient, who is extending his hand and saying, do you trust me? Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. So remember, Jesus is merciful with our doubts. We say to him, I, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And he does. He loves his little faiths. So today, whether you are taking a sledgehammer to your faith, or it feels like your faith is taking a sledgehammer to you, might I suggest that this week, You climb off off that construction site, and you take off your hard hat, and you wipe that sweaty forehead, 
and you bring all of your entirety, all your little faithness, and sit with Jesus. That's it. Just sit. Just sit and rest because you can trust him.